Well, in order to follow where we're going this morning, uh, you have to understand a basic concept of human life. Uh, This is something uh, that we all know to be true. In fact, I bet you have experienced this at some point in your life. Uh, And the principle goes like this. You can see something without recognizing it for what it really is. You can see something or you can see someone without recognizing that thing or that person for what it really is. We experience this a lot in life, right? I'm sure you can think of a moment or two that that come to mind. We even experience it so much that we created a a phrase, a slogan to describe it, where we say hindsight is 2020, right? There are things that you can can miss for the first time. And here's one of my my favorite examples of of when this happened uh, in my own life. When I was a a freshman in college, uh, my friend Jake sent me a late text late in the evening. And and Jake had been my best friend throughout middle school and high school. We knew each other well. Uh, We grew up together in rural Kansas and did all kinds of weird and and crazy things together. So when he texted me late at night, uh, I knew something good was coming. And here's basically what he said. He said, so my dad sold his motorcycle to someone in Nashville. And he wants me to take it to the guy, but wants someone to go with me. You in? Now, Jake was still in high school at this point. So he was a senior in high school, he was a freshman in college. And the proposition was for the two of us to take a motorcycle to Nashville. But I'm not kidding. The the next morning at 4 a.m., we put a motorcycle in a pickup and drove it 17 hours to Nashville. I even have a picture to prove it. I think it should pop up there. Uh, this, This really did happen, maybe. Maybe our our slides aren't working right now. That's cool. You don't need a picture. You can just imagine. Uh, There it is. There we go. Um, So this did happen. Uh, We we did do this. Uh, We joked the whole way there that it had to just look so ridiculous that two teenagers were hauling a motorcycle in a pickup just just cruising down the highway. Um, It had to look pretty crazy. Now, here's the other important thing to know about this scenario. No one knew this guy. His name was Nick, that's all we knew about him. Jake had not met him, Jake's dad had not met him, I had not met him. Uh, We did not know this guy, but we were about to make like a major transaction with him. (laughs) In fact, we were, it had been arranged to where we were gonna stay the night at his house. Like he was also who we were staying with. (laughs) I don't know what our parents were thinking, but this happened. So we ended up in Nashville, and of course, as we're driving down the highway in Nashville, uh, what happens? Well, both of our phones died, okay? So we did not have access to a GPS or maps or anything like this. Um, so I've already been, I've always been pretty good at navigating, so I was like, all right, this is game time. I've got this. I've got to get us there somehow, which seems like a good time to remind you that we've never been to Nashville before. We don't know where he lives. And we don't know him. We don't know anything about this situation. So I just kept driving straight. I was like, well, my first thing I'm gonna do, I'm just gonna drive straight. Uh, And I just kept driving straight and I ended up in the parking lot. I I was like, we drove in and I stared up and there was like this massive football player. And I was like, uh, realized we're in the parking lot of the Titans stadium. uh, And I had a really good Titans joke here. And then the Packers lost too. I'm really mad about it. So we're not gonna make the Titans joke. Uh, But it wasn't a great start. We were in the parking lot, it wasn't great. But we kept going, kept driving around, and eventually we actually ended up making it to Nick's house. I, don't, I can't even tell you exactly how we got there, but we got there, uh, we figured it out, and it was super late at night. And we're at the house, this guy we don't know, and we walked, we just went in, we were like, all right, I guess we just walk in the back door now. Uh, so we walked in the back door, uh, motorcycle in, in, still in the pickup. And when we walked in, we were met by a couple uh, that was just making its way out. 
Uh, it turns out Nick had a roommate, uh, a woman whose name I can't remember, and she introduced herself to, then to her boyfriend who was with her, whose name I do remember, his name was Tim. And we talked for a few minutes with them and then settled in the house, Nick still was not there. And it was as we were sitting and just like waiting for Nick to get there and just sitting around settling in, we we're like, all right, what's gonna happen here? Um, that it clicked. We were like, Tim was really big. Actually, like way bigger than most humans I've ever met in my life. You don't think, so we started Googling. Started Googling his first name, we didn't know his last name, so we were just Googling Tim. Took a while, turns out there are a lot of Tims in the world, so we're just Googling it. But eventually, we found him. And his name was Tim Shaw. And he was a football player, a linebacker and special teams player for the Tennessee Titans. We even found a video of a pump block touchdown that he scored. Man, pump block touchdown. Every word is just ringing with grief for me right now. <laughs> we found a video of a pump block touchdown he scored, and, and immediately Tim Shaw became our favorite football player, just because we'd met the guy. We didn't know anything else about him, but we, we were like, we met this guy. We met an NFL player. We, sh we, we shook his hand. We, we talked with him. We, we saw him in the flesh. It was cool. But because in the minute... In the moment when we met him, we didn't recognize him for who he really was. We also had some regrets. Like we would have asked him so many different questions. We would have tried to maybe score some tickets or something like that. Like, hey, could you hook us up? Uh, you know, how does it, how does it feel to, to have millions of dollars? Um, questions like that. Even though we saw him in the flesh and met him, we didn't recognize Tim for who he really was until it was too late. We didn't realize the significance of our chance meeting until after he was gone. Now here's what John is gonna help us see this morning. We can do this very same thing with Jesus. We can see Jesus without recognizing him for who he really is. We can see Jesus without recognizing him and the full significance of who he really is. So if you haven't already, please turn with me uh, to the book of John chapter 1. By the way, obviously we lived, obviously Nick was a chill guy. I uh, just want to get that out of here, uh, out of the way. Like he was cool, it all worked out, we had some good barbecue, it was great. Not as good as Kansas City. Anyway, turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to keep going here in this series that we've been in. Uh, John is the fourth gospel. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, gospel is just a, a theological biography of the life of Jesus. Uh, and we're in a series right now through the first little bit of the book of John that we're calling Word Made Flesh. And what we're doing here is we're just walking through the first few chapters of John's gospel, and we're looking at it through the lens of Jesus' incarnation, which is just the fancy way that Christians talk about the fact that Jesus became human, uh, that he took on a physical body, uh, that he actually walked around on this earth. Uh, that's Jesus' incarnation. So that's kind of the lens through which we're looking at these first few chapters of John. Now, the Gospel of John was written by John, who was Jesus' apostle. Uh, so if you ever see Jesus walking around with some guys in John's name, that's that guy. Uh, he was one of Jesus' closest followers uh, who actually lived with and interacted with Jesus like on a daily basis. Uh, in fact, he'll refer to himself several times throughout his book as the disciple that Jesus loved, uh, so had pretty high self-esteem too, and that was John. So, so John and Jesus were like tight. And John actually put a lot of stock, if you read this gospel or the other letters that he wrote, um, he put a lot of stock in the fact that he actually saw Jesus. That his account, when you read what John writes in the gospel of John, like it's an eyewitness account, like he saw this stuff happen firsthand. For John, Jesus isn't 
just an idea or a set of beliefs or a worldview or even someone who lived a long time ago. He's actually someone he saw in real life. Someone he hugged, someone he, he shared meals with, someone he laughed with, someone he cried with, someone he saw in real life. In fact, this is so important to him. Look how he begins one of his letters towards the end of his life. He wrote a letter called First John, uh, and here's how he begins it. He says this. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. In other words, like, we saw this, we looked at it, we touched Jesus. The word was made flesh, we saw him, we touched him. And so the gospel of John is written from the perspective of someone who saw, touched, and interacted with Jesus. And and this morning, John the Apostle is going to introduce us to another guy named John, uh, and we call him John the Baptist. Uh, We don't call him a Baptist because he was a Baptist theologically. That didn't even exist back then. Uh, I know it's confusing. There's like two Johns. One was a Baptist, but not really a Baptist. We call him the Baptist just because he baptized people. Uh, That's why we call him John the Baptist. So he was out baptizing people, and at this moment, uh, when John was written, he was kind of leading a sort of mini-revival in Jerusalem. So Jewish people were like coming out into the wilderness. That's where he set up shop, was like out in the desert. And people came out there to to see what was going on. And they were just flocking out there to be baptized. And he was preaching. And there's just this amazing energy in the air around John. And it had to have been pretty amazing what was going on with John because it got to the point where the Jewish leaders and Pharisees sent some people to check it out. They were like, hey, like go out there, see what's going on. What's up with this John guy? He's doing some spectacular stuff. Who is he? Why is he doing what he's doing? And the first thing they ask him, if you heard the the scripture that was read this morning, is they're like, hey, so are you the Christ? You might know Christ isn't Jesus' last name, but it's like a title. So they're basically saying like, are you the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Now, if that's any indication of how spectacular John's ministry is, when you get mistaken for the Messiah, you know you're doing something right, all right? So there's some crazy energy here. And they're like, are you the Christ? And John responds, kudos for John, to John for his self-awareness. Because if I was asked that question and I had the, seen the things going on, I would have been like, why, yes, I am. <laughs> I am the Christ. How'd you know? But he doesn't develop this, any kind of Messiah complex. He knows exactly what he's been sent to do and he sticks to it. So he says, no, I'm not the Christ. Then they're like, okay, well, if you aren't the Christ, clearly you're someone important. Are you Elijah? Are you the the prophet who's supposed to come who's going to be like Moses? Now, both Elijah and this prophet like Moses were were important figures that the Old Testament prophets had anticipated would would come and lead the Jewish people at some point. So they were like many Christ. They're not actually Christ, but they're like people who are going to come and lead and be awesome uh, for them. And so they they were looking forward to them. So like, hey, are you these two guys? But again, John knows how to stay in his lane. And he says, no, I'm not either of those guys either. That's not that's not what I've been sent to do. Now, those are like, like the big three people that the Jews were waiting for. It was like the Christ, the Elijah, the Moses prophet. Those were like the big three. You could start a great basketball team with those three guys. So they started getting a little skeptical. It's like, well, if you're not any of those three guys, then who are you? And why are you baptizing again? We have to come back. We have to tell the Pharisees something. So what is going on here? Who are you? And that's when John gives them his best interpretation of his own identity and purpose. Well, let's pick up the narrative together, starting in verse 23. Here's what he says. Here's how he describes himself. He says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, 
as the prophet Isaiah said. John here is quoting a passage in the book of Isaiah, one of the Old Testament prophets, where God, at this moment in Isaiah, is promising to lead his people back to Israel after exile. So they've been in exile, and he's like, hey, I'm going to lead you back. It's a passage that's all about restoration and redemption. And the image that's used there in Isaiah is the image of a highway. God kind of uses this illustration of a highway to say, hey, I'm going to lead my people back, and I'm going to make a highway in the desert for you to walk on. That's how easy it's going to be to get back to Jerusalem. I'm going to make a highway for you to walk on. But before God actually leads the people here in Isaiah, the the highway has to be made. The way has to be prepared because the desert has a lot of stuff in it. He says the valleys are going to be filled. The, The mountains have to be lowered. Crooked paths have to be made straight. Rough spots need to be leveled out. If there are any obstacles in the way, they have to be removed. In other words, stuff has to be cleared out if God's going to lead his people back. That's that's the idea. Uh, God's going to lead his people back on a highway, and he's got to clear some stuff out first. And John, interestingly, picks up on this passage to describe his own role. He says, I'm that guy that's calling out. I'm that guy who's getting things ready for God. I'm making the way. I'm clearing out the path. I'm preparing, all I'm doing is preparing for someone who's coming after me. I'm clearing stuff out. When when Ashton and I bought our our house, uh, we knew that before we really felt at home and were able to really enjoy the house, uh, there were some obstacles and clutter that needed to be cleared out before we settled in. If you've ever bought a house, you've probably had some stuff you needed to do before you moved in. So what we did was we hired a clearing out guy. I don't think that was his official title, but that's what I'm going to call him. He's a clearing out guy. And the clearing out guy came in, and he removed the rugged mantle on our fireplace. Uh, He took off this awful Murphy bed on the wall of our bedroom. Uh, He did all of this with a hammer. Uh, So he just took a hammer, and he was just going to town. Eventually, we got all that stuff out. And after the clearing out guy left, uh, we then hired a clearing out crew, uh, a.k.a. my in-laws. And my in-laws came, and they came to help us get all the clutter in our backyard removed. Just tons of plants everywhere and made no sense. So we just cleared all that stuff out so we could actually see our our yard. And and, and then my in-laws came. They helped us get ready. And once we'd done all this, the house felt ready. We were prepared to, to move in and to settle in. And in a sense, that's what God sent John the Baptist to do, is to, to get things ready for the people of Israel and for the coming of Jesus. Look to what he says in verse 26. He says, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So we could say it like this, that John is getting people ready to see Jesus for who he really is. John is getting people ready to see Jesus for who he really is. That's his goal. That's why he's baptizing. That's why he's preaching about repentance. It's all to get people ready for when Jesus is revealed to them. All of his work, he says, has been preparation for someone else who's coming. It's not about him. It's about who's coming. He's the getting ready guy. The person who's making the paths for Jesus clear. His job is, is to point ahead to Jesus' ministry and to get people prepared for what God is going to do. And in the process, he's clearing out obstacles of religion, of spirituality, of, of 
all kinds of different obstacles so that the, the Jewish people can see Jesus for who he really is. And notice again what he says in verse 26. If you want to pop that slide back up there, Austin, what he says in verse 26. John says, I baptize with water, but here's what he says. He says, among you stands one you do not know. In other words, the person I'm talking about is already in your midst. You've probably seen him before. You probably know this guy. You've talked to him. But the thing is, even though he's been among you, you don't know who he really is. He's actually greater than me. And he's going to do things that are greater than I'm doing. And everything I'm doing is just to get you to recognize this person who you've already seen. He already stands among you. You just don't know him. What this makes me think of is, uh, you all know that I'm a Lord of the Rings guy. This makes me think of Aragorn. Um, and if you've read the books or if you've seen the movies, like for a while, like everyone sees this guy and he's like, it's just this rugged guy who's just out in the wilderness and he's like this wanderer. You kind of don't want to get associated with him. But secretly, what not very many people know is that he's literally the king. Okay, he's just like waiting to become the king, uh, and so he's been waiting a long time. So everyone looks at him, and they're like, who is this sketchy guy? But actually, he's the king. They, were, they spent time with Aragorn and, and like talked with him, but they didn't recognize him for who he really, truly was. They had no idea. And that's what John's saying is happening with Jesus. In fact, later on in Jesus' life, people are going to say, wait, isn't this Joseph's son? What's he doing doing miracles and stuff? Like, isn't this... Isn't this that guy that we, like, we saw as a baby? Now, every indication in this passage is that John the Baptist, at this point, doesn't know exactly who he's talking about. In fact, later on, he's going to say, I don't know him. I didn't know him. I don't know this guy. He doesn't know that it's Jesus of Nazareth he's looking for. God just told him what to look for, but he hasn't met this coming person yet. He, he just knows that his job is to get people ready to see and know the Messiah. That's all he knows. But then finally... The very next day, he sees him. And because of all the signs God said to look out for, he knows, he recognizes him immediately. And here's what he says when he sees him and recognizes him and reveals him. Here's what he says. He says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is verse 29. And said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he, this is the guy of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him. There you get the idea. He didn't know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So here we finally arrive at the culmination of John's work. He's been waiting, he's been preparing, he's been getting people ready for this big moment when Jesus is revealed. And when John sees him, this is the very first way he identifies him to the people, the first way he talks about him to the people. He says this, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Before anything else, John reveals Jesus to the people the people who, who have seen him before, the people who don't know his full significance, and John recognizes him as the Lamb of God. In fact, if you jump down to verse 36, you see that he repeats the same thing the very next day. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. 
So this lamb thing is pretty important for understanding Jesus. And here's what this means. If we had to say it a certain way, here's, here's how we could say it. We could say, if you don't see a lamb, you aren't seeing Jesus for who he really is. If you don't see a lamb, you aren't seeing Jesus for who he really is. People had spent time with him. They'd seen him. But they didn't know until John revealed it that this guy was actually the lamb of God. If you don't see a lamb, you aren't seeing Jesus for who he really is. Now, basically every scholar makes it clear that John the Baptist probably didn't understand like the full meaning of this phrase when he said it. He kind of had maybe some of that foresight a little bit. But John, the gospel writer, definitely had a bigger picture because he wrote way after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But either way, both Johns were definitely drawing on a breadth of Jewish tradition with the phrase Lamb of God. And I think if we're going to see this morning Jesus is the Lamb for, for who he really is, it's important for us to understand what images they're drawing on when they call Jesus the Lamb of God. Because most of us don't attribute very much meaning to lambs or sheep, do we? Like, we just don't do that. We don't spend much time around sheep unless you're a farmer. We don't have any traditions to do with sheep. Like, we're not hitting a sheep with a mallet at a chief's game. That's not happening. We're just not doing anything with sheep. And for me, the most important thing that I do with sheep every day is I trade it for brick and wood to make a road. That's how I interact with sheep in my daily life, okay? So this might feel a little weird to us to, to call Jesus the lamb. But lambs pray, played a really central role in, in the historical and, and theological development of the nation of Israel. And there were three primary kind of lamb-related images in the Old Testament, all of which are being employed to some degree here. So there are three images that John is, is drawing on for this. And there are three things that, that Christians believe on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus are all reflected in the person of Jesus somehow. So we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning just getting a, a small glimpse of each of these three lamb images so that we can see Jesus for who he really is and recognize his full significance. Does that sound good? Okay, here's the first. Jesus is the Passover lamb who delivers us from death. Jesus is the Passover lamb who delivers us from death. Now, this is the most significant image that, that John's Jewish audience would have had in mind. Like, when you say Lamb of God, this is the first thing they're thinking of uh, when they heard it. Because at the heart of the national identity of Israel was this narrative or this event that we call the Exodus, right? When, when, the, when God led his people out of slavery in Egypt. And a key moment in that, <coughs> excuse me, Exodus narrative is the moment where, where God was bringing his final judgment on Pharaoh and on the people of Egypt, which was the death of every firstborn person and animal. But in the middle of that judgment, he gave the Israelites these instructions, which came to be known as the Passover instructions. Here's what we have a couple of verses to, to help get some context. This is from Exodus 12. Here's what he says. He says, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb. There's the lamb. Uh, and the lamb is for his whole family, one for each household. Keep going there, maybe. Then they are to take some of the blood, so they kill the lamb, take the blood, and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. So take the blood, put it on the doorway, and on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. There's one more there. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, when I see the blood of the lamb, that's the sign that I will pass over you. 
and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So they're going to take a lamb, they're going to slaughter it, they're going to put the blood on the door or of the building that they're eating in, and what that means is that God would pass over them. In other words, the, the blood of the lamb was a sign that they would be protected and delivered from death. And, and this ended up being called the Passover because God passed over. And it became an annual feast of remembrance that, that God protected and delivered his people. And this Passover, it became a foundational moment for the people, the Jewish people. And the lamb's blood continued throughout their writings and their conversations to be symbolic of deliverance from death. That was, that's what the lamb's blood symbolized, was deliverance from death because of the Passover. Now, John himself, John was Jewish, and so he was deeply steeped in this Passover tradition. And as an old man writing his gospel, crafting this narrative, he structured it so that key moments in Jesus' life, including his crucifixion, are centered around the Passover feast and the remembrance of the Exodus. So these key moments in Jesus' life keep happening around the Passover in John's gospel. Now, what does all this mean? What does all this stuff mean? It means that John doesn't want us to miss the connection that Jesus is the new and better Passover lamb. That his blood, which would be shed on the cross, has significance because it sets his people free from slavery just like the Israelites were. And it delivers his people from death just like he did the Israelites. Jesus is the new Passover lamb and his blood delivers from death. That's the first image we have to understand if we're going to understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that we all need delivering from death, and it's Jesus the Lamb whose blood makes that happen. But when, God, when John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, he's doing more than, than calling to mind the Passover Lamb, even though that's kind of his main point. In fact, I think he's folding in another Old Testament image on top of it that adds even more texture so that we can see Jesus really truly for his full significance, and it's this that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who removes our sin. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb who removes our sin. That's kind of how John describes it. He's like, behold the lamb of God, what is he going to do? He will take away the sin of the world. And many scholars here believe that John is actually alluding to another key passage from the book of Isaiah here. Uh, if you've been to a Good Friday service or around the church much, you've probably heard this read at some point. Uh, but, but let's read this together. I have it up on the screen. Here's what Isaiah says. It says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now this passage has often been seen uh, as kind of a foreshadowing of the death of Jesus. And John seems to be combining the image of a lamb led to slaughter uh, on whom God lays the iniquity of us all with that Passover image. In other words, if we're going to see Jesus as he really is, we have to see him as a true and better sacrificial lamb who offered himself in our place to remove our sin. A true and better sacrificial lamb who offered himself in our place to remove our sin. Now the Hebrew scriptures, they were abundantly clear uh, that sin, which we could just give a little tagline as rejection of God and its effects in some way, that sin was a real problem. Like it's a big deal. In the Hebrew scriptures, it was clear that it plagued individuals. 
It plagued the nation of Israel as a people. It plagued the world. And because sin was a real problem, it needed a real solution. Because sin separated God's people from him, something had to be done to make them acceptable before him. There had to be atonement. Someone, in other words, someone had to pay for the injustice and unrighteousness of the people. And in places like, like the book of Leviticus, uh, if, you, if you want a great reading to put you to sleep this afternoon, you could read the book of Leviticus. Uh, but in those places, it's actually a beautiful book. We see how the sinfulness of the people is removed. And it's removed by regular sacrificial offering. Sacrificial offering. This sacrificial system was set up in order for the people to be made right with Yahweh. Whether they're individuals, families, the nation as a whole, they brought animals at appointed times. They might have been bulls, they might have been goats, they might have been lambs. And they bring them to the altar, and the priest would, would slaughter them. And the blood was, was seen as, as the sacrifice. The animals that were slain were, were viewed as, as representatives of the people making the sacrifice. So the animal, they assumed the just punishment for sin, and as a result, the people were given the means to stand before a holy God. What's the blood of animals doing here? More than anything, I think it's showing the cost of sacrifice. Something valuable had to be given up in order for people to be forgiven. Something valuable had to be given up. The animal stood in the place of the person who needed forgiveness, and the blood covered their sin and removed their guilt from them. I think Fleming Rutledge, uh, who's a, a priest, uh, brings the full force of this home when she says this. She says, the miracle of Christ's sacrificial death is that the priest and victim have become one. Instead of an unthinking animal involuntarily slain, that was the sacrificial system, the Son of God knowingly offers himself. Instead of a, a sacrifice endlessly repeated by sinful human beings to no ultimate avail, Jesus' death is once and for all, having been made by the one who abides forever. And instead of a mere animal, physically unblemished, this victim, though he becomes lower than the angels, in order to offer himself as a sacrifice for us, is in fact the incarnate Son of God. Jesus is the Passover lamb who delivers us from death, but he's also the sacrificial lamb who removes our sin which should be good news for those of us who know we have sin that needs to be taken away. But there's one final image at play here. It's one that's easy to miss, but would have been hard to ignore for John's Jewish audience. And we could summarize it like this. Jesus is the warrior lamb who wins our victory. Jesus is the warrior lamb who wins our victory. And you're like, warrior lamb? That's a weird image. I don't often think of lambs going to battle uh, and being strong and mighty. Uh, I think of goofy lambs, like the video that Dakota showed on the day after Christmas. I think of those kind of lambs. But Jewish apocalyptic literature looked forward to this kind of militant lamb uh, who would destroy evil and eradicate injustice. Like, that's what this militant lamb would do. It's like, evil in the world, gone. Injustice, gone. It was gonna fight against it. And this lamb was envisioned as a mighty warrior. He was expected to bring powerful victory and to restore God's people. So this image is picked up here by John when the Baptist says that the lamb will take away the sins of the world. See, when we talk about sin, 
And we're talking about more than individual mistakes and failures, than individual personal rejections of God. In fact, the word sin here in John 1 is in the singular. It's not sins, like specific sins. It's the word sin. And it's talked about on a cosmic level. It's, it's the sin of the whole world that's taken away. Which means John here is referring to the totality of sin and not just the forgiveness of individual sins for the Jewish people. In other words, all sin the sin of every person in this room, not just in Israel, but around the world. Not just for those in the crowd, in the in crowd, but the outcast, the, the foreigner, the outsider. All sin. Every way that God's good design has been manipulated or distorted or ignored in us personally or relationally or systemically or physically or emotionally or spiritually, cosmically, all sin is on the table here and all of it's going to be taken away. Amen? Isn't that good news? The same lamb who's dealing with our sin personally is dealing with all evil and injustice cosmically. Personal, national, global, cosmic renewal is what's being envisioned here. And while, while John just gives us kind of a small taste of this idea here, he actually makes it explicit in another book he wrote, uh, which is the book of Revelation. Uh, if you want to, like, have your mind go crazy instead of going asleep this afternoon, read Revelation. Uh, it will go crazy. But there, kind of looking ahead to the redemption of all creation, John's favorite way to describe Jesus is as a lamb. He does it over and over and over and over again in Revelation. And at one point, he, he envisions Jesus in this great worship scene as a slain lamb who has triumphed like a lion. Look what he says in Revelation 5. He says, Then one of the elders said to me, this is John's vision, he says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So he's expecting a lion. But then when he turned, he says, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the center of the throne. It is this lamb in Revelation who unleashes judgment and justice on all evil, all oppression, all injustice in the world. It is this lamb who destroys the great enemy, the beast, the evil one. It is this lamb who is a mighty warrior in Revelation who vanquishes sin forever and makes all things new. It's the same lamb who wipes every tear from the eyes of the suffering in the new creation. And it's this lamb that leads John to cry out in Revelation 12, they triumphed over him, the evil one, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's what gave them victory. Jesus, friends, is the warrior lamb who wins our victory. We get to share in his victory. And he doesn't win it militantly through coercion or abuse of power but through the sacrificial giving of his blood. And that's where all of these Old Testament images come together. When John the Baptist proclaims, behold, look, see, recognize, take it in. He's the Lamb of God. Take a look and see this guy for who he really is, a death-delivering, self-sacrificing, sin-covering, battle-winning, brutally slain lamb who, by the way, is the very Son of God. Here's how this passage closes. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here's the key. I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. John's entire purpose in baptizing was to get us ready to see Jesus like this. God sent John as the clearing out guy to get rid of obstacles that might get in the way of recognizing him for who he really is. So as we close, I just want to ask this question. And I want us to take a minute to just pause and reflect. Do you truly see Jesus like this? Do you see Jesus like this? As the lamb who wins your battles. As the lamb who redeems you from sin. As the lamb who delivers you through death. Do you see Jesus like this? And if you don't, why? What obstacles might be getting in the way of your line of sight or clouding your view? Is it the the obstacles of of religion? Like you have these expectations of what the Bible and and God are like and you can't really give those things up? Or is it the, the obstacle of vague spirituality? You just can't really grapple with the idea of a God who died. Maybe it's some sin in your life that you actually would secretly would rather not be taken away because you kind of like having it around. Maybe it's cynicism. Like, I just don't get, like, this blood thing. Like, you're kind of cynical, maybe. What obstacles, what might need cleared out of your life so that you are ready to behold Jesus as the lamb who was slain for your deliverance, for your forgiveness, and for your victory? What might need cleared out? On January 11th, 2007, you might have heard this story before, uh, world-renowned violinist Joshua Bell performed at, at the Library of Congress in D.C. So, so he had this show set up, and there were tickets to this performance that were starting price was well over $100. And, and so he did this show, but the next day, Bell performed in a public area near a subway entrance wearing street clothes. And he had his open violin case in front of him like, like he was a, a common street performer. This is the same person with this, the same violin who just hours earlier had played for a packed crowd of people who shelled out hundreds of dollars per ticket. And now he, he was playing for a crowd of people who the vast majority weren't all that interested. And a hidden camera was set up to, to capture the moment. I think you can find footage. But you can see in the video a handful of people do stop to listen and linger for a bit, but no one stays for more than a minute or two. And then they go on their way, kind of like we usually do in those settings. The lion's share of the crowd simply walked by as though he isn't there filling the air with his beautiful music. Some of us may have a familiarity with Jesus. We've heard about him. We've learned about him. Maybe we've spent some time following him. But is our relationship to Jesus more like those who passed by Joshua Bell in the subway on January 12th or those who intentionally sought him out in concert on January 11th? There's a difference between seeing Jesus and beholding Jesus, taking him in for who he really is. Will you behold the Lamb of God this morning? Let's pray. God, this is uh, a lot to take in. This is a lot to understand. Um, And I need to do some soul searching. And we do. To make sure there aren't things that are clouding our view of Jesus in some way. 
Maybe we have a hard time seeing him as someone who cares about systemic injustice and eradicating evil in the world. Maybe we have a hard time seeing ourselves as in need of sin or deliverance from death. God, would you help us to see, would you help us to see your son clearly? I pray that he would reveal himself to us in ways that we least expect it, and that this work of looking at the life of John the Baptist this morning would do the very same work of getting us ready for what you're going to do in our lives through your son, Jesus. We thank you that there is hope because the Lamb of God means hope. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of his spirit. Amen.